Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. my brothers and sisters in Christ, on behalf of those who don't yet know you, uh, those who are tuning in online, those who are in this room, uh, will you crush our idols today? And will you draw our hearts to you? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Have you ever played the game Hot or Cold, where you got an object, say it's this laptop here, and it's like, if you get closer, it's hotter, hotter, and further away, colder, colder. It's kind of a kid's game. And I was playing it this week with my uh, youngest daughter, Gracie. She's 10 years old. I called her in the room. I said, Gracie, come in here. We started talking. I said, do you want to play hotter and colder? And she said, yeah. I said, go grab some stuff. So she comes back with a hodgepodge of 10-year-old jewels. It was like some half-used box of stick-on nails she probably got from her sister's room, a, a paper origami fish. I didn't even know it was a fish. She said, where'd you hide the fish? When I went to it, there we go. A little fish that was there, some uh, toothbrush, and a single shoe, <laughs> not a pair of shoes. And uh, I looked at the stuff that she brought in the room, and I said, if I hide this, do you even care if we find it? She's like, eh, eh. So we played for a little, you know, I hide the shoe, and she's like, hotter, hotter, and colder, colder, and we do the whole thing. And then I decided, let's make this a little more interesting. I said, Gracie, how about if I, I hide five bucks? Her eyes light up. And I was like, and you look for it, and if you don't find it, you have to give me five bucks. And some people call that gambling. I call it parenting. And so we were making this more interesting in the process. But I, she went in the laundry room. I hid the $5, and uh, she came back in. She had a laser focus now. We, uh, we had uh, negotiated terms and conditions, and uh, I told her she had seven minutes. We started at 12, and she got on to seven minutes, and she was going to find this thing. She comes in, she starts hitting my pockets. I'm like, colder, it's not on me, it's not on me. It's like cold. Um, she goes to another spot in the room, and I said, you're colder still? And she, she accused me of lying at that moment. <laughs> I want to compromise my integrity for $5 in this kid's game. And, and so then I started messing with her. And she'd walk through, and I started whispering, warmer, you know, warmer. She's like, you can't do that. I was like, you, I make up the rules. It's my $5. I can do whatever I want. Start covering my mouth like an NFL coach doesn't want to be seen on camera. And she said, I can't hear you. I said, you've got to get better at listening. It's not my problem. Clock's ticking. I got a phone call in the middle of it. And the phone call, I said, stop. We got to pause. To which she thought that meant, my wife thinks we need like 5,000 pillows in the living room to decorate. So she throws the pillows everywhere. I'm like, cut it out, like while I'm on the phone. And it's like, the timer's not going. And eventually she found the $5. She was so excited and so celebrated for her. And I said, how about we make this even more interesting? Let's invite Ava, your sister, who's upstairs to play. Ava's 14, Gracie's 10. So I call Ava. I said, you want to play hot or colder? I don't know if she was listening, but she came down and she goes, how about you hide five bucks, dad? <laughs> So we did a couple rounds without that. Eventually we got to that. And you would be shocked in our home how little competition is necessary for an all-out brawl to break out. So I hide the five bucks. I went and there was this little thing on our coffee table and I stuck it underneath the thing on our coffee table and I told them to go to the laundry room. And I said, go. The 14-year-old grabbed the 10-year-old, threw her to the ground, <laughs> ran out in the living room. The 10-year-old comes running back in. She goes, that's not fair. I'm weaker. I was like, Get stronger, clock's ticking. And so they're running around looking, hair's getting pulled, people are fighting on the couch, they're rolling around. Wasn't on the couch, well, I was totally comfortable at this moment. I started trying to cheat and help the, the youngest, and I would say, warmer, warmer, and I'd point, like, to go where, and then the 14-year-old would look and go, who's warmer? I'm like, I don't know, not my problem, like, figure it out. Dog's getting all riled up. Eventually, the 14-year-old grabbed the thing on the table, and I didn't even know it, but the doll, it stuck to the bottom of the thing. <laughs> 
and then it fell and the 10 year old grabbed it. And so it was like, who won? So there's controversy. They're fighting more. The dog's barking. I said, stop, mom's going to be home. If y'all don't clean this place up, because it was a mess. Nobody's getting any money. It was a modern day miracle. How fast the house got clean. It was incredible. I didn't know they were capable. Well, all from this hotter and colder game. You know, the Bible says that we can be hot and cold to Jesus. In the book of Revelation, there's this church called Laodicea, the church of Laodicea, uh, where Jesus says, I wish you were hot or cold, but you're lukewarm, and so you make me sick. I want to spew you out of my mouth. In fact, the message, I like how the, the message paraphrase says it in Revelation chapter 3, and we'll put it up on the screen. It says, I know you inside and out, Jesus speaking. I find little to my liking. Ouch. You're not cold. You're not hot. Far better to be either cold or hot. You're stale. You're stagnant. You make me want to vomit. And then we see in the Old Testament and in the New Testament this call to draw near to God. In Jeremiah the prophet, it says this, Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. James says, draw near to God and God will draw near to you. And then we've been studying the book of Hebrews together and it's a theme in Hebrews that we're called to draw near to God. Listen to some of these verses, some we've seen, some we haven't seen yet. Uh, Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 16, we spent a lot of time on this one. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. We haven't seen this one yet, but it's coming. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, famous verse. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. In our passage today, in Hebrews chapter 7, there's two verses that talk about this. In verse 19, it says, For the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And then in verse 25, Consequently, he is able, talking about Jesus, to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. But the question is, how do we draw near? Near or far, hot or cold, how do you even know? And that's what we're going to talk about today in Hebrews chapter 7, if you've got your Bibles. Hebrews chapter 7, the fun thing about that kids game is it teaches them to be better listeners. And do you remember how the book of Hebrews started? That God speaks in many ways and in many days. But today he speaks through his son. But then he doesn't tell us what his son says. And so in chapter 1 we're going, well, okay, what does he say? And instead it just talks about who he is. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than glory. He's greater than power. Okay, but what does he say? Chapter 2, warning, don't drift. You don't drift to God, you will drift away, don't drift. So the first thing he says is a warning. In chapter three he says, don't harden your hearts. If today you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as they did in the day of rebellion, Israel, listen, so we listen with our hearts, okay. In chapter four, another warning, don't miss his rest, be fearful. God says, be fearful that you're gonna miss my rest. Don't miss his rest. In chapter five, I wanna tell you more, but, but you're too immature. You're like grown up still sucking on a bottle. You should be eating steak. You're, instead, you're drinking milk. And so I can't tell you the things I want to tell you. And he gives a warning in chapter 6 that it's life and death if you fall away from God. Now in chapter 7, he tells us how to draw near. Look what he says. Hebrews chapter 7. We're going to read the whole chapter today, uh, Lord willing. We'll do the first 10 verses right now. For this Melchizedek, remember he started talking about Melchizedek back in chapter 5, verse 11. And then he paused and he said, you can't handle this. But now he's talking about Melchizedek again, like already. He says, King of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, 
returning from slaughter of the kings and blessed him. That's interesting. So he's referring to something. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He's first by translation, talking about, not Abraham, but talking about Melchizedek, of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. He's without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the son of God. That's a key, might underline that today. He continues a priest forever. See how great this man was? Okay, so what we're going to read next is how great he was. To whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And so Abraham tithes to him. Now Baptist pastors love to take this passage and teach about tithing. That is not what this passage is about. (laughs) But some people argue, I don't tithe because it was in the law. And Abraham's before the law, just so you know. Tithing's not a law issue. Tithing's a worship issue. And so here you're seeing that Abraham worshiped and he brought a tie to this guy who wasn't even an Israelite, by the way, Melchizedek, who's greater than, than any of the Levitical priests. See how great this man was? Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi, that's, that's who came through Abraham, those are where the priests are, that the Hebrews are tempted to go back and worship through. Levi, who received the priestly office, have a commandment in the law to take tithes from people, that is, from their brothers, Through these also are descended from Abraham. Though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have this descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It's beyond dispute that the inferior, that's Abraham, is blessed by the superior, that's Melchizedek. So Melchizedek's greater than Abraham's what's being talked about here. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself who receives tithes, paid the tithes through Abraham. For he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. And so he's saying, in a sense, Levi is tithed to Melchizedek. Melchizedek's greater than Levi. So here's the deal. I know that we live in an academic world, and so I'm going to give you the academic outline. We've got 20 colleges and universities in the triangle. We've got three seminaries here. But I don't think that's what most of you want. But I'm going to give it to you real quick. Here's the argument of this passage in Hebrews chapter 7. Melchizedek is greater than the Levites. The Hebrews are tempted to go back and worship through the Levites. And Melchizedek points people to Jesus. Jesus is greater than Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is greater than the Levites, so Jesus must be greater than all of them. So Jesus is better. That's the summary. And there's some other nuggets that I'll give you academically throughout this passage, but I don't think that's why most of you come to church. Most of you aren't looking for a seminary class. Most of you want to know, is this word really living and active? Does it really make any difference in my life? Okay, well, back up. Remember, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11, he said to them, I want to tell you some deeper truths, but you can't handle the truth because you're still on milk. But then here we are. He goes through chapter 6 telling why you're so immature. And then now in chapter 7, he tells us the deep truths. <laughs> so either they grew up or he's saying, here's the best way to grow up. We're going to throw you in the deep end of the pool and see if you can swim. Because what he's doing here, talking through Melchizedek, is telling these Hebrew Christians, here's the application You're trying to approach God the wrong way through religion. You need a paradigm shift. You think, and so many of us believe this too, you think you can trust Jesus Christ as your savior, enter into a relationship with him, and then pursue God through religion. Here's what you need to know, application. You were never called to follow a religion. You were called to follow a savior. They're tempted to go to the religion because the religion is safe, the religion is manageable, the religion is comfortable. Jesus is not comfortable. Jesus doesn't need you to manage him, and he is not safe. 
They're realizing that because persecution is starting to come. And so their temptation is, I want to still have Jesus, but I'm going to go back to my old way of worship, so I'm going to go to these Levitical priests. And he's blown out of the water going, no, no, no. You know, because of that, he's greater than those priests. And Jesus is the new priest. He's greater than all of them. And so the question that's really being asked here in this passage is, how do I get close to God? And that's what we're going to talk about. And the first point is this. If you want to draw near to Jesus, you want to draw near to God, this comes happens through Jesus, then you walk in the greater blessing. It's our first point. To draw near to Jesus, you must walk in the greater blessing. And remember last week, we were talking about Abraham. Pastor Rob was here, and he was talking about how God promises us blessing, and then we're to bless him in return. And so he talked about the two promises. Well, last week, the passage was talking about Abraham. Abraham, the father of our faith. Some of you, when you think about him, you imagine that song, the children's church, Father Abraham, and some reason you're moving your arms. And and many sons, and you know, go through this whole thing. And, and remember, he's introduced at the beginning here, but you remember what happened with Abraham, if you are familiar with the Old Testament, it's in Genesis chapter 12. Abraham's given three promises. He's given a promised land, a promised seed, and a promised blessing. The promised land, we talked about a lot when we were in Hebrews chapter three, the promised seed is that he's going to have a son, and then through that son, the promised blessing, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. Hmm. So there was actually a promise earlier than that in the Bible too, in Genesis chapter three and verse 15, that someone will come and crush the head of the serpent. That's about Jesus. And so you keep asking yourself this question as you're reading the Old Testament, who's the seed? And then you get to Abraham and then Abraham's gonna have Isaac and then is it through him? But you get to the New Testament, the answer is Jesus. And that's why the gospel of Matthew starts out this way. Matthew chapter one, it's a genealogy. It says the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. That's what Matthew's about. And you go, that's pretty boring devotional reading because then it just goes through names, right? It says that, that Jesus Christ is the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac the father of Jacob and Jacob the father of Judah. And it gets all the way to Jesus. And what's the point of that? Well, it's not a coincidence. The end of Matthew says this. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. See, this is a global an eternal plan that started back in Genesis chapter 3 in verse 15 when the promised seed was given. Then through Abraham, he's promised a land, a seed, a blessing. What's the blessing? is going to come through Isaac. It's ultimately Jesus. And then here we see that Jesus is tied back to Abraham and Isaac. And then the book ends with, go to all the nations. Do you know what's happening there? You're being invited into God's eternal global plan to impact the nations. Which is go make disciples, a common verse. And so many of you know, if you've been in church very long, like you're supposed to tell people the gospel and you know, and that can become religion too. So in the first church, first service, I wasn't planning on uh, sharing it, but like 10 or so years ago, we started a, a vision. We had brochures and t-shirts and all this. And it was a who's your one. And I joked that some of you uh, used to attend Summit Church. I said, I've texted JD, so he knows this in love. Uh, they stole that from us and then had their whole denomination do it. And I texted him like, what are you doing? I was like, but more people hear the gospel. So it's awesome. But what happened was we told each of you, like, find one person a year and try and share the gospel with them. And, and what I didn't realize we were doing was heaping more religion on you. Because we're just telling you, like, it's okay. I mean, some people came to Christ, and Paul talks about that in Philippians, and people shared out of bad reasons and motives. Okay, but people are coming to Christ. And, but if we just tell you to go share the gospel and you just do it because that's what good Christians are supposed to do, then you miss the point of what's supposed to happen that we've been talking about lately, is you're supposed to experience spiritual transformation and that leads to gospel saturation. And that'll lead to people all over our city coming to Christ because you talk about what you love. 
if I'm telling you to talk about Jesus and you don't love Jesus, what's the, what's the real content behind that message you're sharing? You're sharing fact. It's a sales pitch. But if it's overflowing from your life, people are like, I want some of that. That's what you're being invited into in the gospel story here. Is it your life? You're called to follow this Savior. You fall in love with this Savior, but are you in love with them? And here in our passage, telling us, how do we, hotter or colder, how do you know? And the way that he gets at it is he talks about this figure, this guy named Melchizedek, or some people pronounce it Melchizedek. Well, okay, learn Hebrew, and then we'll argue about it. I don't remember it. I took Hebrew too fast in seminary. I don't know. So I'm saying Melchizedek today. But who is this guy? Well, if you start reading about him, he's only got a few verses in the book of Genesis. And then a thousand years later, there's one verse in the Psalms. And then he gets mentioned a little bit at the beginning of Hebrews. And then it said, hey, I want to tell you about the deep things. So some of you are like, I want to go deeper. Like, I know the, I know the gospel and I know the basic truths of the faith. Like, take me to the deeper. Okay, here it is. His name's Melchizedek. <laughs> What's it about? What are you talking about? And he's connected to Abraham because did you see in our passage in, in verses 1 and 2, it said, after Abraham had slaughtered the kings. What? I don't know if you've read Genesis chapter 14, but I want you to get in your mind a picture of Abraham. What do you think of when I say Abraham? And I wasn't sure what everybody would have, so I Googled it. And do you believe it or not, they have a picture of Abraham on Google. <laughs> so, yes, there it is. And that's the idea I think a lot of people have of Abraham. I think if you read Genesis chapter 14, you might get a picture that's more like this of Abraham. <laughs> what happens in Genesis chapter 14, it's kind of like the movie 300. I don't know if you've ever seen that or not. Not the Netflix version. Watch the TNT version, the Lifetime version, the edited TV version. And uh, what happens is there's this king, uh, Leonidas, who's leading the Spartan army of 300 men. He's going to go fight Xerxes. Xerxes has got thousands upon th an innumerable amount of men. They're ruling the wor world. And they're going to go and fight these Persians, these Spartans are, with just 300 guys. It sounds ridiculous. My favorite scene in the movie happens, and I have to just share this with you. I don't know if it really ties into the message or not, but uh, favorite scene in the movie is when Leonidas is walking. He's marching with his men, and they're going on their way to battle, and they bump into another army. And by the way, none of these guys have eaten carbs for like eight years, okay? They're all ripped. It's like it's amazing. And so then, no dad bods on this thing. And so they, they come walking up, and there's another army of guys that are all ripped. And this army general says to Leonidas, you know, some greetings, and then he says... You come against Xerxes with this handful of men? I would have thought that Sparta's commitment would at least match our own. To which then Leonidas says to one of the guys, what is your profession? Potter. Potter. You've seen it. <laughs> Love it. Do you remember the next one? What is your profession? Third one. That's the third one. Second one is a sculptor. Come on, you guys got to get this stuff. Come on, stop buying it. Memorize scripture, then this movie, all right? So here's the then Leonidas kind of chuckles like we just did when these guys say they're potters and sculptors and blacksmiths. And then he says, Sparta, what is your profession? Ooh -ah, ooh -ah, ooh -ah. Come on, you got to be with me here. <laughs> and then he just looks at the guy and says, looks like I brought more soldiers than you did. He's only got 300. The first time they come into battle with the Persians, the Persians say, Spartans, lay down your weapons. And they say, Persians, come and take them. And you're like, yeah, let's go. Uh, do you know what happens in Genesis chapter 14? There's a world war. There's five kings that are going to get dominated by four other kingdoms. So these four kings come together. They battle the five kings. The four kings whip their butt, take all their stuff, including Abraham's nephew, Lot. 
So somebody escapes from that, goes and tells Abraham, and then Abraham looks like the rock. Hmm? (laughs) And he grabs Genesis 14, verse 14, 318, so he's got more guys than Leonidas, sorry. 318, not potters and sculptors, trained men, and they go pursue these four kingdoms, thousands of people. And listen to what the Bible says happens. Genesis chapter 14, it says this in verse 15. And he, Abraham, divided his forces, he's only got 318, against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them. And so as he's whipping their butt, that's parenthetical, and pursued them, 318 guys pursuing four kingdoms, pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions, so it was a significant tithe when he tithed, and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions, got all the stuff that they took, and the women and the people. So everybody but soldiers came back. So I think Abraham looks like the rock. I don't know if he shaved his head or not, but same idea. And then everything you need to know from Genesis about Melchizedek happens in the next couple verses. Verse 18, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of the God most high. Okay, so he's a king and he's a priest. There are only two of those in the Bible, Melchizedek and Jesus. You see a few kings in the Old Testament try to act like priests, it goes poorly. Saul, Uzziah, it never goes well for them because God wants to use one guy, Melchizedek, to point to the other priest king, Jesus. And so here you go, this guy comes out, he's the king of Salem, he's a priest, and he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram by the God most high, by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand, and Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Now, we don't hear about Melchizedek again until a thousand years later in Psalm 110, verse 4. And this is what gets written about in Hebrews a little bit later. It gets quoted. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever and the Lord of Melchizedek. That's setting up God doing something new, greater than the Levites. His name is Jesus. You want to go deeper in your faith? You want to know Jesus better? Then you need to know about this guy, Melchizedek. Who is he? What is it about him? Will you look in our passage today? Hebrews chapter 7, verses 2 and 3. It's a whole bunch of stuff that points us to Jesus. And so what you see happening in the Bible is there are what's called typologies or Christ-like figures in the Old Testament that point us to Jesus in the New Testament. The first one that we see that is clearly identified, most scholars agree on, is a guy named Isaac, Abraham's son. So in Genesis chapter 22, what happens is Isaac is going to be laid on the altar and sacrifice a uniquely born son who's being sacrificed by the father on an altar. And there's this conversation that happens where Isaac says to Abraham, where's the lamb for the sacrifice? And, And Abraham says, God will provide the lamb But if you read Genesis chapter 22 really closely, God doesn't provide a lamb. He provides a ram. So you're left asking the question, where's the lamb? Then you get to the New Testament, and there's this guy named John B., John the Baptist. And he says, behold, the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world is Jesus. So Genesis chapter 22 was pointing us to Jesus? Or what about that guy Jonah? Remember what's happening in that story? There's a whole bunch of people that are about to experience the wrath of God And he says, if you sacrifice me, the one for the many, then he'll go into a watery grave for three days and then come out after three days and you'll all be saved. Jesus talks about this when he predicts his own death. He says this in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. 
For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What Melchizedek is, is a Christ-like figure, a typology that points us to Jesus in the New Testament. You want to know Jesus better? Get to know this guy named Melchizedek. What does Hebrews tell us about it? He says this, and to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth, so Abraham tied to this guy, part of everything. He's first by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also the king of Salem, that is the king of peace. And then we go on to see, it talks about him, what's not said about him. He has no genealogy. He's forever. He's eternal. And, and he's a priest king. And there was no other priest king. But how about these titles? The king of righteousness, the king of peace? <laughs> Who else is called that in the Bible? Isaiah 9? He'll be your prince of peace. The government will be on his shoulders. He'll rule with righteousness. It's Jesus is the king of righteousness. Jesus is the king of peace. And so here, Melchizedek called the king of righteousness. Couldn't we use a king of righteousness in this time? Talk about unrighteous time. We have lost shame, by the way. We've therapized that out of our, our lives. I don't know if that's a word. We'll make that a word. We just hold ourselves. Shame's bad. Shouldn't have shame. Get rid of shame. There's no more shame. Should you know what people do? Whatever's right in their own eyes. We're like the book of Judges now. And we see it continually in our culture. It's happening all the time, the unrighteousness that's taking place. And, and we, we can just get used to it. I had a friend who's here in the audience today, emailed me the other day, and he was telling me about a friend of his who was involved in what he called uh, polyamory. And I was like, what is that? I've never seen that. Just, you can take the words and figure it out. But um, the gist of it is it's they've, people are labeling their infidelity and now they think that validates it. He's got a friend who's saying, I'm, I'm into this, and so it means that I'm going to have a lot of relationships, not a monogamous one, but not just one night stands. I want meaningful relationships with a lot of people, and as long as I tell those people, then it's not cheating. To which I responded to my friend, and I said, I think we've just gotten to a time where as long as we label our sin, it validates the sin. And many of you are posting this week about, you know, the swimmer that's got gender dysphoria. And so he wasn't a very good swimmer as a guy, but now he's dominating all the women. And it's like, that's not fair to the women. He's stealing from, I agree with that, by the way. But let us not forget, there are none righteous. No, not one. We've all sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. So we need a king of right, not our own self-righteousness. We need a king of righteousness. Oh, and Jesus is better than Melchizedek because Jesus is not only the king of righteousness, he gives us his righteousness. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says that he who knew no sin became sin so that we could be not, we could be seen as, not we could know about, not we could claim, we could become the righteousness of God. That's your blessing. You want to walk in your blessing? Walk in that truth, that you are righteous by Jesus Christ. Amen? You want to draw near to Jesus? Then walk in your blessing. You want to know hotter, hotter, colder, colder? Are you walking in that truth? And he's a king of peace? What does it mean that he's a king of peace here? So here is the king of Salem, which means he's the king of peace. That word Salem is where they get the Old Testament word shalom. It means peace in Hebrew. And what is that? Well, I think it's really easy to illustrate that we do not live in a time of peace when there's a war going on. So just turn the news on and you can see that when prescriptions for anxiety drugs and depression drugs are at an all-time high, pretty clear that we don't live in a time of peace. But the problem is, 
the way we define peace and the way the Bible defines peace are not the same thing. We always fall short in our definitions. Peace is not just an inner peace. Peace is not just that we're lacking conflict, whether in our home or in our country. Let me read to you from one guy who's done a great job. He's spoken pretty in-depthly about peace, what he defines peace as. His name is on here, and so if you want to look up his book or take a picture of this, you can do that. He says, The webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets call shalom. We call it peace, but it means far more than a mere peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed. Think about what that kingdom looks like. A state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, here's the summary statement, is the way things ought to be. But we don't live in a world where things are as they ought to be. And when we talk about war, I turned the news on the other day, and my 10-year-old that I was mentioning at the beginning of the message is walking into the room. I'm like, get out, get out, get out! Because they're killing, lie, it's not made up, it's not, you know, acting, it's not 300 comic book stuff, it's, hey, there's a real person dying on the TV right now because they were killed in war. That's not how it ought to be. So what's being talked about here? How can you be a king of peace when things are not as they ought to be? I wish Jesus had just told us that he was, he was going to give us a peace that surpasses understanding of this world. Oh, he did. Philippians chapter 4. But why don't you give us a heads up that this peace is different? The peace I give you is not as the world gives. That's in John. But how, where do we get this peace? Ephesians chapter 2. He is our peace. Do you want to have a peace? The surpasses understanding, a peace internally, how things ought to be, when externally things are chaotic, that peace was purchased for you by the king of peace, Jesus Christ. Melchizedek points us to him. Want to draw near to him? You want to know if you're hotter, hotter? Are you experiencing that peace in the midst of this chaotic world? But if not, then how do we do it? How do, how do we do that? And that's what the rest of this passage tells us. To draw near to Jesus, you must experience what God is currently doing today. And I know that's redundant. It's intentional. To draw near to Jesus, you must experience what God is currently doing today. And I think the church and this church and probably most people's church experiences, we're really good about singing about and teaching about and talking about what Jesus did 2,000 years ago. And that's true, and that's important. It's the most important decision you'll ever make is based on what Jesus did 2,000 years ago when he died so you could become, if you place your faith in him, his righteousness, and he would become your sin at the cross. So you could experience that, that change. It's important. But we're also good about many churches talking about Jesus coming back, right? Like some of you grew up in churches where they got charts and diagrams, and they don't say the date, but it's like tomorrow, and like you're going through the, all this stuff, and he's coming back on a horse. He came as a lamb. He's coming as a lion. He's going to whip some butt. He's on a horse, not because gas prices are high, because that's what God said would happen, and he's going to win. It's going to be awesome, amen? But then we're left with this gap in our Christianity. We know what he did. We know what he's going to do, and we don't say it, but we kind of imply, and he's taking about a 2,000-year break. But this passage tells us what he's doing. Look what he's doing. You want to go deeper? Here it is. You want to go deeper? Look. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 11. 
Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under the people received the law, what further need would there be, have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? In other words, there wouldn't, they wouldn't be needed. Rather than the one named after the order of Aaron. By the way, Jesus doesn't come through Aaron's line. He's not Levitical. And so this is all confusing for some of these people. This is how religion is supposed to be. For when there is a change in the priesthood paradigm shift, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one, so this isn't religion, it's relationship. For the one whom these things were spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. That's not Levi. And in the connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. So it's not in your law. But he's a better priest. How? This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, that's where Jesus comes from, who has become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, meaning he came through the line of Levi, but by the power of an indestructible life. Oh, whole new category. Indestructible life doesn't mean he won't die. That means death can't hold him and the grave cannot contain him. Amen? Easter's coming, but we talk about it every week. I've been to Israel. They've got about three or four different places they think that Jesus might have been buried. They're all empty, just so you know. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, for on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. In fact, the Bible teaches us elsewhere, it showed us that we're not perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope, you might underline that, that's becoming a theme we'll get to a little bit later in Hebrews. Hope in the Bible, by the way, is not like how you hope Duke wins today. I'm a Michigan State fan, I hope you're wrong. It's not like how you hope UNC wins the tournament. That's, that's a wish. A hope, biblically, is when you, you place your expectations of the future on what God has promised to be true. You just haven't experienced it yet. And that's how you draw near. A better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. And here's where that psalm that I read to you comes in. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, Psalm 110, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Talk about that next week. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Indestructible life. Jesus is greater. Amen? So what's he doing? Consequently, he is able, there's his power, to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, through Jesus, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So once he died, he's coming back. Right now, one of the things he's doing is interceding for us. What does that mean? Let me read you something I read in my study. Again, you can take a picture if you want. Grab some of these verses and look them up later. It says, after Jesus ascended to heaven, it was after he died and rose from the dead, he ascends into heaven, and was seated at the right hand of God the Father, he returned to glory, the glory he had before his incarnation, that's when he became human, put on flesh, to carry on his role of King of Kings and Lord of Lords, his eternal role is the second person of the triune God. While this old earth continues to be one for Christ, Jesus is, present tense, the advocate for Christians, meaning he's our great defender. This is the intercessory role he currently fulfills for those who are his. That's a great verse to look up, 1 John 2, 1. Jesus is always pleading our case before the Father like a defense lawyer on our behalf. Think about that. We get pictures of some conversations in heaven a couple times in the Bible. One is in Job chapter 1. 
when Satan's speaking to God about Job, about testing him. So we see what happens there. In Luke chapter 22, Jesus says to Peter, Satan has asked to sift you, but I've prayed for you. We know that Satan is the accuser. He's bringing accusations against you in heaven. We know how Jesus is defending you. I don't know if you've met any defense lawyers before. I've talked to a few. I've listened to some talk about their jobs. If you want, there's TED Talks of defense lawyers talking about, they all say the same thing, that people ask them this question. How can you defend people like that? How can you defend those people? Criminals, people that are guilty. People that have broken the law. Um, Even the unsaved defense lawyers will give you the answer, at least this. They have a right to a defense. They're human. The Sixth Amendment. We'll give you the legal response to that. At least that. The ones that are good will tell you, these people have a story. Not saying what they did was right, but it's at least my job to help the judge understand the story when the judge is considering the sentencing. Not saying what they did was right, just saying, understand where they're coming from. The really good ones will say, these people deserve to be loved and they see their job as a ministry. Jesus loves you. In heaven, there's accusations being brought against you. Many of them are true. Not all of them. Many of them are true. To which Jesus responds, and we know this because Scripture tells us, uh, that's on my account. I already got that one. Uh, Strike that one from the record. As far as the east is from the west, so far have I removed that from that person? Nope, there's no condemnation. I've already paid that penalty. That sentence has already been served. Jesus is actively doing that on your behalf in heaven right now. But that's not all his intercession is. It's not just a defense attorney. He's our advocate. He's speaking on our behalf, which means this. He knows what's going on in your life, and he's praying for you different than I can pray for you, different than anyone else can pray for you because he fully knows God's will. And he's praying for you like that continually. And this passage actually teaches, look close to verse 25. That's what keeps you saved. It's not you. It's Jesus, not only what he did, what he's currently doing for you. So you think about what's happening in that. And think about, well, so many of us are poisoned by American Christianity, by the way. Like, we just got this idea that everything's just got to be okay. I remember when I first became a Christian, I love Jesus. I'm telling people about Jesus. I'm studying my Bible. And then I got invited to church. <laughs> you want to mess up a new Christian, bring him to church. <laughs> because we're weird as Christians. That's why. I remember I was sitting at my first prayer meeting, and this guy was taking prayer requests. And, he, and somebody raised her, this girl raised her hand, and she said, unspoken. I was like, what in the, is that? I didn't have Christian vocabulary yet at that moment. And so I'm like, that is, what is, what are you even talking about? And so you came here to tell us you're not going to tell us stuff? That's really weird. <laughs> and so I asked somebody afterwards, I was like, unspoken? What are you talking about, unspoken? And they said, well, they want to be prayed for, and they know that God knows all of it, and they just want us to pray for them. They don't want us to know all of it. I was like, uh, I guess that logically makes sense, but... You don't trust us to tell us the stuff, but you want us to pray about the stuff. All right, okay. This is weird, but I can get into that. And what I've learned as a pastor is, oh, it's a pressure that everything's got to be okay. It's not okay. You live in a world that's not okay. Everything doesn't have to be okay. It's not okay. I was listening to a podcast this week. Uh, Not a Christian podcast, but it was a guy talking about uh, taking risks with his family and I was thinking about it. You know, as Christians, we're called to step out by faith. And what, are, what am I teaching my kids? Like, what am I doing that actually requires faith in my faith journey? And so I'm listening to this guy talk about how his, his dad started an African safari in South Africa. They, his, his, his grandpa was a lion hunter. 
And so he bought this land on a whim one night at a bar. Somebody offered him this land. And then when his grandpa died, they told his dad, he's like, the land's junk. Uh, you should just sell it. If you can get anything for it, that'll be great. And the dad was like, no. Like, we're going to have a dream here. We're going to go start a safari here. So he moves his family to South Africa to start the safari group there. But the problem was when the kids got old enough to go to school, they didn't know where to send them to school because they were in the middle of nowhere. And so he said, my parents had to figure out how to get us to school. And what they decided was they would charter a plane, but the safari club wasn't that successful yet. So they had to learn how to fly the planes themselves. And then the guy said, my parents were not good pilots. And he said, our first plane crashed. Now he had my attention. I'm like, first? He's like, first plane crashed. And he tells a story. But then he gets into the podcast. It's like two hours long. He gets to this one point where he says, you know, eventually the safari group was so successful, we could afford to not only charter the plane, but to hire a, a commercial pilot to come and fly the plane. And he tells a story about this one time we got on the plane, and there were four of us in the back, and we're in these captain's chairs, and we were looking at each other. So I was looking at my sister, and my mom was sitting across from her friend, and then there was the pilot in the front, and he was sitting next to my dad. And so my dad's like co-pilot in this thing. And we're flying along. Everything's going to smooth. Then I hear this terrible noise. Something had come crashing through the windshield of the plane. They had a head-on collision with a stork. <laughs> and the stork's beak stuck in the face of the pilot and his neck broke and the body was, was spread all over the place. So there were blood and guts flying all over the cockpit. Wind's blowing through here. We hear this terrible noise and my mom's friend just starts yelling, we're all going to die. We're all going to die. He said, to which my mom smacked her in the face and said, we're not going to die. And she grabbed out of her purse a bunch of codes from when she was a pilot and started yelling them to my dad. And so we're trying to get this emergency landing. He said the pilot woke back up, grabbed the bird, realized it was in his face, and passed back out. He said we <laughs> emergency landed the plane, but we're covered in guts from this bird that's blown up in our plane. He said so we made this emergency landing, and the bad part was we only chartered that plane so we could make a connecting flight with a commercial plane. So now we've got to get on a plane with all these other people. And he said, so I said to my mom, what do we do? And she said, just smile and look forward and pretend like nothing happened. <laughs> to which I thought, that's what a bunch of people are going to do tomorrow when I preach. <laughs> They're covered in blood and God. Like, we're out, the world is, there's a, it's tough out there. But we feel this pressure to come and act like everything's okay. That's not okay. And Jesus knows that and he's praying for you. Even if you leave it unspoken, he's praying for you. But what is he doing? What else is he doing? He's doing more than just praying for you. Look at what it said in the passage. He's still doing miracles. Some of you need a miracle. Some of you need healing. Emotionally, physically, spiritually. It says, consequently, he is able, powerful, to save to the uttermost. Why don't you just say save? What do you mean save to the uttermost? What are you talking about? Save to the uttermost. Some of you say save forever, continually save. Different translations. I love the save to the uttermost. Because I think it gets at what's being talked about here, which is the length and depth of the salvation that Jesus offers. The length is how far his reach is. And I think we do a good job talking about that as a church. Because we talk about, you know, it's Paul. He was killing Christians. And then God would come and make him the guy that would write a bunch of the New Testament to point people to Jesus. Are you kidding me? And I've told you stories throughout the history of our church. I told a story one time about a, a woman. She's now a pastor's wife in Durham. But she's a lesbian. And she was very uh, anti-God and wrote some articles that were anti-God, which is what brought her to Christ. God can reach like that. The most controversial story I think I've ever told in the life of our church because it got the most uh, feedback from uh, religious folks that were mad at me for telling it. And maybe some of it was my fault for how I told it, but I was talking about how I had met a lawyer who baptized Ted Bundy. He's a serial killer. And I had people come to me afterwards and go, he wasn't really saved. He's not only a serial killer, he's a serial liar. And I'm like, I don't know. If I get to heaven, he's there. I'm not going to be mad. So what I would talk to those people about is, do you think he couldn't do that? What did it take to save you? And oftentimes it's a picture that we don't really grasp grace. 
And so whether you believe Ted Bundy was saved or not, I'll, I'll tell you is what I didn't emphasize when I told that story was the lawyer that I was talking to about this was not his defense attorney. It was a prosecuting attorney that felt called by the Holy Spirit to go and visit him, even though in his heart he actually hated him. And what God was doing was smashing idols and self-righteousness in his own heart and had him meet this guy, Ted Bundy, baptizes him in this prison drinking fountain, and then tells, us, tells me, he said, the way that Bundy says that he came to Christ was there was a woman who wrote him a letter, and he had killed that woman's daughter. And if you know Bundy's story, that wasn't all. It was terrible. And said, I forgive you. And Jesus can forgive you because Jesus forgave me. That's not just length of salvation, by the way. That's depth of salvation and what he was doing in that, not just Ted Bundy, he was doing in that woman. That's what we oftentimes call transformation. And some of you need that miracle today. So that's why the worship team's coming right now. The way we're going to end this sermon is we're going to sing. We're going to sing a song that I think has some lyrics of healing in it. And some of us need healing. Some of you need healing in relationships that have been broken with each other. Some of you need healing emotionally. Some of you need healing from just this last two years. Some of you need healing in that you need to have your soul saved and redeemed. You need the peace, the shalom peace that only Jesus Christ can offer as the Prince of Peace. You need to be right because you're not righteous. You've been battling sin. And so what we're going to do, we don't always do this. Those of you who are new today, but just we're going to stand and sing a song. And if you want to come and lay stuff on the altar before the Lord, I just invite you to come up here. We've got steps across the front and no one will, will come and ask you any questions. You can leave it unspoken, <laughs> but um, people will be praying for you if you come up here and we're going to be singing the song over you. And maybe you're doing great in your relationship with Jesus. Just sing these words over the people that are in this room. The Bible says that's what we're supposed to do when we gather, sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That's reminding each other of truth that then influences our relationship with Jesus. So I'm just going to ask you all to stand. I'm going to begin a prayer for us. If you feel led to come forward, you want to lay a burden down at the altar, you want people to be praying for you in our church, and you just come to people coming already. It's awesome. Father, I just come before you. And I ask you to move in our midst. I ask that we wouldn't go through the motions of church and just gather together today, but that you would encounter us through the words of the song, through the words of your word, through our experiences together. God, if there's a work you need to do, don't let us, let us miss that. There's people that want to come forward, but they're afraid. God, bring healing. Just bring healing, however you want to do it. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.